0: All right, we're going to keep this conference running like a weld oiled machine, start right back up at one. My name is Thomas Berry. I'm a research fellow here at the Cato Institute's Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, and I'm managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review, where I had a front row seat to just how insanely hard Trevor has to work to make this all happen, how insanely cooperative and timely and patient our authors are with us and have to be to make this happen. And so my thanks to all of them and to everyone Trevor named and thanked in the first panel. We almost always have a First Amendment panel at Constitution Day. It's smack dab in the middle of our wheelhouse here at the Levy Center. And usually there's no shortage of First Amendment cases at the high court. This year was unusually light in one respect, as there was really, I believe, just one decision on core First Amendment speech. And you'll hear Professor Armijo speak about that. So we made the theme of this panel a little broader. We have one case on First Amendment speech one case on First Amendment religion clauses, and two cases on the state secrets doctrine, which although not directly governed by the First Amendment, arguably touches on many of the same values as the freedom of speech and of the press, namely the values of transparency and the open marketplace of ideas. On First Amendment speech, you'll hear about a case that might at first seem to concern a niche topic, municipal sign codes, but as you'll hear, the case actually concerned weighty questions with implications extending far beyond just signs, Questions concerning when the government can discriminate against a speaker based on what the speaker says. Next, you'll hear about two cases concerning the state secrets doctrine under which the government has claimed the right to withhold evidence and sometimes even dismiss lawsuits entirely based on claims that releasing the evidence could harm national security interests. How deferential should courts be to such claims? And when should courts themselves insist on reviewing the secrets in private to evaluate the government's claims? And finally, you'll hear about a case concerning either one or both of the religion clauses of the First Amendment, depending on which side of the case you're on. If a state offers a voucher type program for public funds to go to private schools, can the state exclude religious schools from that program on the theory that public funding raises establishment of religion concerns? Or do such programs raise no establishment concerns, meaning that the denial of funds constitutes a burden on the free exercise of religion? And does it make any difference whether the funds go to religious education as opposed to merely religious affiliation? Here to discuss these cases, we have three distinguished scholars. And as always, we abbreviate the intros up here, leaving out their long list of accolades or accomplishments, publications, titles of nobility. You have more time to hear from the panelists themselves, and you can read their full bios in the back of the review, which you all have. I'd like to remind our audience online, you can submit questions on our event webpage at Cato's website, or in the comments on Zoom, Facebook, or YouTube, or on Twitter using the hashtag CatoScotus, C-A-T-O-S-C-O-T-U-S. So first up, we have Enrique Armijo. He is a professor at Elon University School of Law, an affiliated fellow at Yale Law School Information Society Project, and a faculty affiliate at UNC Chapel Hill Center for Information Technology and Public Life, and he will be speaking on the city of Austin signs case.
1: Well, thank you all for coming. Thanks uh, to Cato and Tommy and Trevor. Uh, as Tommy said, uh, I'll be talking about sign ordinances. Sign ordinance cases are really the perfect right after lunch topic. Um, but as Tommy also said, uh, part of my goal in this talk is to kind of try to persuade you that there is these cases are a lot more important than their narrow application that I'll be talking about. And we also, in the interest of keeping the blood flowing, have some uh, visual aids. And uh, once I kind of get into the talk, we're all going to get to play uh, sign ordinance enforcer. So you have that to look forward to. I really have. Uh, I've got it on the monitor, but not on the screen. I've got, uh, while they're working out the PowerPoint, I've got really four goals for the talk. The first is to talk about kind of this changing role that government purpose has played in content discrimination doctrine, how a 2015 case called Reed versus Town of Gilbert kind of resolved that and rejected analysis of government purpose in favor of a facial test for content discrimination doctrine. Uh, what the court decided this past term, in the case that Tommy said I'll be talking about, Austin versus Reagan national advertising, why that was a significant departure from the rule in Reed. And then if I have time, I'll talk about why Reed was actually the better uh, First Amendment rule, at least in my view. So when I talk about content discrimination doctrine, more commonly referred to as content neutrality doctrine, what that basically stands for is the proposition that government cannot treat speech uh, differently based on the content of that speech. I think those of us who went to law school remember that doctrine. Uh, if a court finds that that is what has happened, so if the speech has been treated differently because of its content, then the court in reviewing uh, that under the First Amendment has to apply strict scrutiny. If, it does, if that is not what has happened, uh, the treatment gets at most intermediate scrutiny. And this rule goes back 50 years to a case called uh, Police Department versus Mosley in 1972, Justice Marshall says, that there's a picketing ordinance that um, a protester is arrested under, and Justice Marshall says that uh, that ordinance discriminated on the basis of content uh, because it made labor picketing in front of a school illegal, but it created an exception for labor picketing, uh, that, sorry, picketing that was part of a labor dispute. So generally picketing bad, labor picketing okay, Justice Marshall in 1972 says that does not survive First Amendment review. So in theory, uh, as Mosley sets out, this is a facial inquiry, right? It looks to, in deciding whether or not content is being treated differently, it looks to the text of the statute, so a facial test. But as time goes on, uh, in these content discrimination doctrine cases, these these courts post Mosley are using Reviews of the government's underlying purpose or motivation to answer the content discrimination question. So, what this kind of how this shakes out in the lower court is that lower courts are uh, saying that governments can refer to content in their statutes so long as that reference is not to express disagreement or disapproval of the content that the government is referring to in the statute. And this leads to a lot of speech-averse results, right? Uh, You have cases upholding statutes that refer explicitly to sexually explicit speech in the form of uh, the much-maligned secondary effects doctrine. You have panhandling bans uh, being upheld under the First Amendment because you have courts saying, well, this is a panhandling ban, but it's not being passed because the government disagrees with panhandling. And that's not content discrimination. So what this version of the content discrimination doctrine really boiled down to is a search for evidence of discriminatory government purpose or evidence of discriminatory government motive. But what that actually means in application is confirmation of the absence of government motive to discriminate on the basis of content. Because you're almost never going to find a discriminatory motive on part of the government. And this is for several reasons, right? Justice Easterbrook said a long time ago, the legislator is a they, not an it. Uh, Justice Black uh, in 1971 says that the legislature can always change its motivation, right? It can always say that um, uh, in order to avoid judicial review, it can actually give a benign purpose to justify a reference to content. So if there's no evidence of discriminatory motive, then the government's going to win at least on the first amendment, or at least avoid strict scrutiny. And this is why I say, and I talk a lot about this in the paper, the original sin here was probably in calling the doctrine content neutrality, right? Because when you make the doctrine about neutrality, then judicial review looks for motivation. And as I just said, there's never discriminatory motivation. So unless you have something that rises to the level of animus, if the neutrality balance is met by No references uh, or no discussion about negative uh, motivation with respect to content. The courts give the government the benefit of the doubt. So that brings us to, I see him there. Oh, sorry. I guess you can look over there. That is Pastor Clyde Reed. So Pastor Clyde Reed is from the Good News Community Church. He has a church, but no building. And the book of Matthew teaches us, right? As you see there, the quote, uh, you don't need to have a building to have a church, but it's a lot harder to have church if you don't have a building. So what Pastor Clyde Reed does is puts up signs, and all of us have seen these signs, right? Signs that tell people who are driving around the streets of Gilbert, Arizona, where his church is going to meet. Under the relevant sign ordinance in Gilbert, Arizona, where the Good News Community Church is located, That is a sign for a, quote, temporary event. And what that means is that Pastor Reed can have his sign up 12 hours before church, one hour after church, then he has to take it down. Other signs under this ordinance are not restricted in the same way. Pastor Clyde Reed says this discriminates on the basis of content. The Ninth Circuit says this is totally fine. Why does the Ninth Circuit say this is totally fine? Because as I said, Under the purpose-based test that the lower courts were applying, the Ninth Circuit says there's no evidence that the town of Gilbert, Arizona did this because they didn't like the content of temporary purpose signs. There's no evidence of negative purpose with respect to a particular kind of content, no First Amendment problem. So you can treat these signs less favorably as long as you don't have a purpose in doing so that expresses disapproval or dislike of the content of the sign. Clyde Reed goes to the Supreme Court in 2015, and the Supreme Court reverses the Ninth Circuit. So this is what the court says, and this is an opinion by Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas says, sorry that one's, There, there you go. So Justice Thomas says, content discrimination doctrine is a facial inquiry. You look at the text of the statute. If the text of the statute refers to content, then the statute is content-based and strict scrutiny applies. If it doesn't refer to content, if the text of the statute does not refer to content, then does the, you ask the question, does the statute have a content-based purpose? And if the answer to that question is yes, then strict scrutiny can still Apply. So, what's happening here is that the content, a content based purpose can doom the law, right, under the First Amendment, but it can't save the law under the First Amendment as was happening in the lower courts. So, Justice Thomas cleans this up in Reed versus Town of Gilbert in 2015. Uh, There's a lot of consternation about this decision. If you want to hear about it, you can read an article that I wrote called Uh, Reed versus Town of Gilbert, relax everybody. So obviously by the name of the title, I thought there was too much consternation about it. But basically the court is clarifying and cabining the role of government purpose in content discrimination doctrine. Fast forward seven years later, so I'm not going to be able to show you the signs, but I think I can explain them to you. The The city of Austin has an ordinance that says a sign... It distinguishes between on premises and off premises signs. An on premises sign can be built or modified, an off premises sign cannot. So, that this is challenged in the Supreme Court as content based, right? So, that's the, that's the text of the statute. The Austin Ordinance says that, as I just said, if it refers to Kant, cont- if, if the sign refers to something that takes place on the premises, it can be built or modified. If it does not refer to something that's on the premises, it cannot be modified. So based on Justice Thomas's hypothetical at oral argument, he says, I think Justice Thomas likes barbecue or at least one time liked barbecue. And he says, what about a sign that says, eat at Franklin's? So some of us know about, some of us may even stand in line for hours at Franklin barbecue, right? And now, I think this is reading all the times that I click this and panic, so sorry about this not being synced up with what I'm saying. But so assume that the sign says eat at Franklin's, that's an on-premises sign, no First Amendment problem. That sign can be changed or modified. Eat at Franklin's, that sign's perfectly okay. But assume, as you see on the slide now, that the owner of Franklin's says, puts up a sign that says, Texas, keep your laws off my body. That is not an on-premises sign, right? That sign can't go up or modified because it's off-premises under the statute. Third hypothetical, assume that the, mem- the owner of Franklin's Barbecue is a strong believer in the community of meat smokers. Franklin's Barbecue runs out of barbecue really quickly, so he puts up a sign that says, Sorry, I'm out of barbecue, go to Black's instead. Right? That's an off-premises sign, because it does not advertise a service that is at that location. That sign can't go up. One more example, Stubbs. Again, if you know anything about Texas barbecue, this all sounds familiar to you. Let's say the owner of Stubbs puts up a sign, in addition to his sign advertising Stubbs that also says, be saved. Well, that seems to be an off-premises sign, but you might know Stubbs has a gospel brunch on Sundays. So the enforcer of the statute has to say, does that sign advertise something that happens on the premises? And the answer is, I don't know, right? It's up to the ordinance enforcer. And I argue in the paper that this is what the content discrimination doctrine is really about. And this is what Reed got right. So what the content discrimination doctrine is most worried about is discretionary charging by the enforcer. You don't want references to content in statutes that permit the enforcer to then discriminate against speech that the enforcer dislikes. That's what Reed got right. So the city of Austin, Ordinance is challenged in the Supreme Court by a group of people who uh, actually, it was a a billboard company. So under in the city of Austin, the billboard company couldn't modify its billboards, couldn't digitize them. They say this violates the First Amendment. And the the Fifth Circuit comes to the obvious conclusion. If you have to read the sign, that violates read. The sign under the old test under read refers to content. That's a content-based sign. That gets strict scrutiny. That's under the First Amendment. The Supreme Court says that the Austin ordinance is fine and it upholds Reed. So how in the world did this happen? How can you have a content discrimination rule that, that permits Austin to have this ordinance? So here is what they do. They put a gloss on Reed that says, this, this is the doctrinal answer and then I'll give you the real answer in a second. So there's always a doctrinal answer and a real answer. So the doctrinal answer says, the court says, what we really do in read is ask whether or not the law refers to substantive categories of content. The town of Gilbert sign ordinance said yes. You had temporary signs, you had political signs, you had commercial signs. If the answer to that question is yes, then we apply the rule in read, right? Content-based, apply strict scrutiny. But the court says under the Austin case, There also can be references to content in texts that do not refer to substantive categories of content, that are just general references to content, such as the one in the Austin Ordinance. Those are now okay, especially if they have a content-based, they have a content-neutral purpose. So I say in the article that what used to be a Two-step under read is now a backwards tango ocho, right? This is incredibly difficult to apply, but more importantly, what it does it is it increases the ability of the government to interfere with speech. It actually encourages the government to speak generally when it's referring to speech, to avoid the read rule. But so long as what the court says, the, so long as what the court calls the ordinance has a content agnostic purpose then the First Amendment is perfectly fine. And what I say in the paper is that this is a reintroduction of of analysis of government purpose in the content discrimination doctrine, and I think that's a real problem, and I look forward to your questions and comments, thanks.
0: All right, next we have Liza Goitin who is a, the senior director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. She will be speaking on the state secrets cases from the previous term. I think podium is better for the main remarks.
2: Thank you. Uh, First of all, I want to thank Cato for inviting me to contribute to their Supreme Court review and for inviting me here to speak with all of you. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the state secrets privilege and the two cases that the Supreme Court issued in March on the privilege, United States versus Zubaydah and FBI versus Fazaga. The state secrets privilege applies when the disclosure of evidence through litigation would harm national security. And the way it works is that the head of the relevant agency submits an affidavit to the court explaining why disclosure would harm national security, and then the court determines whether the privilege actually applies. And in doing that, the court may review uh, in camera and ex parte uh, the evidence, uh, but often the courts just rely on the government's affidavit. There are two versions of the privilege. The most common by far... Uh, is the one established in United States versus Reynolds, which treats the state secret doctrine as an evidentiary privilege, meaning the privileged evidence just drops out of the case and the case without it. I think I'm going in a minute. This is still working, the microphone? Okay. Sorry, I can't hear it. But the second version was established in United States versus Totten, uh, sorry, Taunton versus United States, and it operates as a justiciability bar. Uh, it's been applied almost exclusively in cases involving secret contracts between the government and uh, uh, covert operatives or defense contractors involving classified matters where the contracting parties were on notice that the, that the that contract disputes would be non-justiciable. For decades, this privilege in both of its forms um, generated very little controversy. It was was invoked quite sparingly. Uh, But then after 9-11, assertions of the state secrets privilege became much more frequent. Uh, And the government also began to explicitly conflate the Reynolds and Totten doctrines. So that in cases having nothing to do with contracts, uh, the government would argue that the case could not be litigated, that it had to be dismissed at the outset because the very subject of the case was a state secret. Some courses have accepted that uh, Taunton can apply outside of contracts cases. Uh, But even courts that have purported to stick to Reynolds um, have dismissed cases at the pleading stage before the relevant evidence has been identified let alone reviewed for privilege. And even where plaintiffs could make out a prima facie case without using any privileged evidence, courts have still dismissed the cases when the government has claimed that it would need privileged evidence in order to mount a defense. To be clear, that is not how evidentiary privileges work in any other context. Normally, as I said, the evidence just drops out of the case and the chips fall where they may. Sometimes the plaintiff is advantaged, sometimes the defendant is advantaged, Uh, But under the state secrets privilege, it's become a heads we win, tails you lose scenario for the government. So if the plaintiffs need privileged evidence to prove their case, the plaintiffs lose. If the government needs privileged evidence to mount a defense, the plaintiffs lose. The result of this misapplication of the privilege, along with some other problematic doctrines, is that 20 years after 9-11, there has still been no accountability in the courts for the major civil liberties abuses uh, that the government perpetrated in the wake of those attacks, including the NSA's warrantless wiretapping of Americans' communications, uh, the FBI's surveillance of mosques, or the CIA's programs of torture and extraordinary rendition. So having teed up the main area of controversy in this area of law, I'm gonna pull a bait and switch on you because uh, the court actually did not address uh, that issue Uh, And in fact, I think the most notable aspect of the court's rulings was its failure to shed any light on the major questions that lower courts are wrestling with when it comes to the privilege. So what did the court rule? In Zubaida, the court set a disturbing precedent by holding that the state secret's privilege can apply to information that's in the public domain. The case was brought by Abu Zubaida. Uh, whom the CIA wrongly believed to be a high-level Al Qaeda operative, uh, and tortured, uh, including waterboarding him um, 83 times in the span of a month. Uh, some of this torture took place at a CIA black site in Poland, and Polish prosecutors are currently investigating uh, individuals who may have been complicit. They sought to depose James Mitchell, sorry, James Mitchell and John Jessen. The American contractors who helped the CIA develop the torture program. To secure the contractor's testimony, Abu Zubaydah from his cell in Guantanamo filed a lawsuit under 28 U.S.C. 1782, which allows courts to issue subpoenas requiring people to give testimony in foreign proceedings. The United States intervened and claimed the state secret's privilege seeking to quash the subpoena both the District Court and the Ninth Circuit held that the existence of a CIA site in Poland uh, and, the, and Abu Zubaydah's torture were very much in the, public record, in the public record and therefore the state secrets privilege could not apply to them. The Supreme Court reversed. It held that any testimony Mitchell and Jessen gave that confirmed the existence of a CIA in Poland were by the state secrets privilege. Now, the European Court of Human Rights had found, by by, uh, not a preponderance of the evidence, beyond a reasonable doubt that there was a CIA black site that operated in Poland. The former president of Poland, who was president at the time, has acknowledged that there was a CIA black site in Poland. There is no doubt on this question. Nonetheless, the court found that Mitchell and Jessen's testimony would serve as official confirmation of this this well-known fact, and that could harm national security, according to the court, because foreign intelligence services in the future might be less less willing to cooperate with the United States if they thought that the US might not respect the confidentiality of the relationship. This reasoning fails on its own terms. There was no confidentiality left to respect. Whatever reputational harm Poland might suffer from disclosure has already happened, uh, but even if, even if that weren't the case, the question that the court should have asked and didn't ask is, does it truly serve national security to honor a promise to conceal participation in war crimes? It doesn't it serve national security in a broader sense a little better to adopt a rule, sort of the equivalent of the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege that the protection courts afford to secret agreements between U.S. and foreign intelligence services will not extend to the commission of war crimes and human rights abuses. Professor, sorry, Professor Shirin Sinar at Stanford um, has an excellent piece coming out soon in the Harvard Law Forum, uh, sorry, Harvard Law Review Forum that explores this aspect of the court's ruling more deeply. In any case, the court's ruling is extremely problematic because it extends the reach of this extremely powerful privilege from the realm of actual state secrets, which was actually large enough as it is, um, to the vast world of public information that might in some way touch on national security. Let's move to the court's ruling in Fazaga. Fazaga raised the issue of whether a provision of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA displaces the procedures that would otherwise apply when the government claims the state secrets privilege. And it's one of the stranger rulings I've encountered. The case was brought by three Muslim Americans caught up in a campaign of surveillance the FBI conducted in 2005 and 2006 against Muslim American communities in Southern California. It was undisputed that the plaintiffs could make out their case without using privilege evidence but the FBI claimed that it would need to use privilege evidence in order to mount a defense, uh, at least against the plaintiff's religious freedom claims, the district court agreed and dismissed the entire case. In the Ninth Circuit, the plaintiffs were foreclosed by circuit precedent from arguing that the state secret's privilege doesn't justify dismissal to protect the defendants. Uh, However, the plaintiffs did argue that 1806F of FISA uh, basically prohibited dismissal. Section 1806F establishes procedures that courts must follow in cases involving electronic surveillance when the government asserts that disclosing information through litigation would harm national security. Under these procedures, the Attorney General first uh, submits an affidavit that asserts the claim. The court must then conduct, in camera and ex parte, a review of the surveillance materials. That that in-camera review is not optional, and the court has to accept the claim of national security harm, but the court also has to review the materials and make its own determination as to whether the surveillance was lawful. So the evidence doesn't get removed from the case, but it does get removed from the adversarial public uh, proceedings. The government argued that this provision of FISA applies only when the government wants to use evidence, uh, generally in a criminal proceeding, and the non-government party wants to suppress it. Uh, The plaintiffs pointed out that nothing in 1806F suggests this, quite the contrary, uh, and the Ninth Circuit sided with the plaintiffs. The Supreme Court was actually faced with two questions. There was the 1806F question, namely, does that statutory provision apply in this category of cases? And if so, does it trump the procedures that would otherwise apply under the state secrets privilege? Uh, But second, uh, there was also the question of whether the defendant's new privileged information can justify dismissal of the case under the state secrets privilege. That alternative question or, or grounds for affirmance uh, was foreclosed at the Ninth Circuit level, but not uh, at the Supreme Court level. The court answered neither of uh, Instead, it held that even if 1806 F applies in civil cases like Fazaga, uh, it doesn't displace the state secrets privilege because, quote, nothing about the operation of that provision, FISA, is at all incompatible with the state secrets privilege. In other words, neither approach displaces the other, they can simply coexist. That's because in the court's words, quote, the statute and the privilege require courts to conduct different inquiries, authorize courts to award different forms of relief, and direct the parties and the courts to follow different procedures. I find this analysis to be borderline nonsensical. The clash between 1806F and the state secrets privilege exists precisely because they require the courts to do different things when faced with exactly the same threshold circumstance, namely information that could harm national security if disclosed through litigation. Those differences are what render 1806F and state secrets fundamentally incompatible. Or a court cannot both rule on whether disclosure would harm national security, state secrets, and not rule on that question, 1806F. It cannot both assess whether the surveillance was unlawful, under 1806F, and not make that assessment, under state secrets. It cannot both grant relief to the non-government party, as it's required to do under 1806F, if the surveillance was unlawful, and dismiss the case, as it does under state secrets. The court just wished away this obvious conflict, but the conflict is there. And so the effect of the ruling is to allow a common law privilege to prevail over a clearly incompatible statutory provision, something that goes against the court's own case law. More broadly, I think this decision uh, probably puts the nail in the coffin when it comes to civil litigation, challenging unlawful surveillance. FISA surveillance materials are always classified The government will always assert the state secrets privilege over them and the government will always claim that it needs them to mount a defense. My takeaway from both these cases is Congress needs to step in because the court is dodging key questions and is doing so in a way that is allowing the privilege to metastasize in the lower courts. Uh, There are a number of things Congress can do to ensure that the privilege is in fact treated as an evidentiary privilege, uh, and to ensure that the privilege doesn't turn national security policies into an accountability-free zone. And I'd be happy to talk about some of those things during the Q&A. Thank you.
0: All right, and finally, uh, next is Michael Bindis. He is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. He'll be speaking on Carson versus Macon, a case he's uniquely qualified to speak on as he was counsel of record for the winning
3: side. Michael. Thank you, Tommy, and uh, to everyone at Cato for inviting me here today and uh, for inviting me to submit an article in this year's uh, review. And this is a panel obviously about the First Amendment, free speech, uh, uh, free exercise, and certainly Carson is a free exercise case and it's a tremendous, uh, in my view, uh, victory for religious liberty. But I'm gonna focus a little bit differently on Carson as a school choice case. I'm not a religious liberty litigator per se. I am a school choice litigator. Uh, IJ defends school choice programs around the country. And so I'm gonna focus on Carson from from that perspective while it's certainly addressing the the religion clause issues that came up in the litigation. Now, since the modern school choice movement was in its infancy back in the uh, early 90s, um, the big unresolved question was whether choice is permissible under the federal establishment clause. Um, Opponents of choice argued that because some parents might choose religious schools, that somehow constituted a state establishment of religion. And thankfully, the Supreme Court roundly rejected that argument back in 2002 in a case called Zelman versus Simmons-Harris. The court said, as long as the program is neutral toward religion, meaning religious and non-religious schools can participate, and so long as the program operates on the private choice of the parent, it's perfectly fine under the Establishment Clause. But the opponents of school choice are a dogged bunch, and so they didn't just pack up and go home at that point. They retrained their focus to state constitutions. And specifically to provisions in state constitutions that you might have heard of. They're called Blaine Amendments, and they're found in some 37 state constitutions, and generally speaking, they prohibit public funding of religious or typically the term is sectarian schools. And opponents of school choice, Everson Selman, have seized on these to attack school choice programs uh, in court, arguing that they violate these Blaine provisions. Now, you might think that There's a problem if a state constitutional provision singles out and targets religion for disfavor, that that could create some problems under the federal free exercise clause, and we certainly think it does. But over the last five years or so, the opponents of educational choice have had a theory as to why that's not the case. That theory is something called the status-use distinction. Basically, what it says is that while it might be unconstitutional to withhold a public benefit from someone because they have a religious status or a religious affiliation. It's perfectly permissible to withhold a public benefit from someone because they might put it to a religious use, such as procuring a religious education. In other words, these folks recognize that it's not constitutional to to discriminate because someone is religious, but it's perfectly permissible to discriminate because they might do religious stuff. Um, and that, in my view, is is absurd. And thankfully, in Carson versus Macon, the case I'm here to talk about, the Supreme Court seemed to re- agree and killed the status-use distinction. Now, before we get to the happy death of the status-use distinction, it's important to look at the origin story of, of the distinction. The status-use distinction was born on June 26, 2017, at 10.09 a.m. It's at that time, on that day, that the Supreme Court handed down another decision, Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia versus Comer. Now, Trinity Lutheran involved a playground resurfacing program uh, that the state of Missouri had. Basically, the state provided monetary grants to nonprofits so that they could resurface their playgrounds with scrap tire material in order to... um, uh, uh, protect the knees of the kids playing on the, on, the, uh, on the playground. Trinity Lutheran Church, which operates a preschool, applies for one of these grants. It's denied. Um, and the state's justification for denying it is the state Blaine Amendment. Uh, Missouri has a Blaine Amendment that prohibits aid to uh, sectarian institutions. And so the state says, sorry, Trinity Lutheran, you can't get it. Trinity Lutheran challenges its exclusion. The case goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court and thankfully, the Supreme Court concludes that that violates the Free Exercise Clause of the United States Constitution because it singles out, uh, singles out and excludes uh, an entity for, from this public benefit program simply because of its religious status, simply because it, of its identity as a church. But then the court, or more accurately, four justices uh, in the majority drop a footnote in the opinion It's a 27 word footnote and it says this, this case involves express discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playground resurfacing. We do not address religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. Now, again, this was four justices signing on to this footnote, not a majority of the court. And the footnote doesn't say there is a status use distinction. It just says we're not addressing whether you know, a a use-based exclusion. We're simply addressing an exclusion that turns on religious status. But nevertheless, school choice opponents immediately seized on that footnote, on those 27 words to argue that state law could bar, that Blaine Amendments could be used to attack school choice programs on the theory that they allow parents to put their benefit to the use of procuring a religious education. Now, Like other members of the uh, 27 Club, this uh, 27-word footnote was not long for the world. And so, as we'll see, it went the way of Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Amy Winehouse, and other members of that club. Um, Now, we thought we might get some resolution on this issue, on on the uh, constitutionality of use-based exclusions in another case, Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. Um, That case concerned a school choice program in the state of Montana, Uh, As originally enacted, it allowed religious schools to participate, but then the state agency charged with implementing it promulgates a regulation that says uh, no religious schools. So we challenge that on behalf of families eligible for the program, and uh, the case goes up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court holds correctly that that exclusion violates the Free Exercise Clause. Um, Missouri, like, uh, I'm sorry, Montana, like Missouri before it had said, well, we have a Blaine Amendment. It prohibits state funding to to, to religious institutions. And the court said, look, this is a, basically a straightforward application of Trinity Lutheran. We said you can't exclude an institution simply because of its religious status in Trinity Lutheran. And that's precisely what your, how your Blaine Amendment is being applied in this situation. So a great win, but the court dodges the question of use-based discrimination and its constitutionality. But the status-use distinction thankfully dies in Carson this term. Um, Now, Carson involves another school choice program in Maine. Uh, Maine is a rural state, there are not many public schools. And if a town doesn't operate a public school or doesn't contract with another school to educate its resident students, it has to pay tuition uh, to the school of the parent's choice. It can be a public school, it can be a private school, it can be in-state, it can be out-of-state, it can be out of the country. But the one thing it could not be was religious. Uh, Maine, since 1981, has had a statute that specifically prohibits, quote, sectarian schools from participating in the program. So we challenged this exclusion in the wake of Trinity Lutheran, and we thought it should be an easy win in, in light of Trinity Lutheran. Uh, but Maine wised up after Trinity Lutheran and after Espinoza the state adjusted its justification for the exclusion it says you know we're not really excluding these schools because they're religiously affiliated we're excluding them because they do religious stuff they teach religion and that's different and the Supreme Court didn't address that in Trinity Lutheran it didn't address that in Espinoza and you know, the main pointed to footnote three, that 27 word footnote and said, this is perfectly fine. Um, The First Circuit bought that reasoning and upheld the exclusion, again, pointing to footnote three in uh, Trinity Lutheran. And also by redefining the benefit. Remember the benefit is tuition to attend a public or private school. The First Circuit said, well, really the benefit's a substitute for a public school. And of course a public school has to be secular Therefore, Maine can permissibly require that the schools that children attend under this program be secular. Um, we appealed that decision to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed uh with us that, that uh is just as unconstitutional as the discrimination that was going on in Trinity, Lutheran, and Espinoza. The court starts out the first half of its opinion by basically saying this is a straightforward application of those cases. In, in fact, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts for the majority says, this is simply an application of the unremarkable principles of Trinity, Lutheran, and Espinoza. And when I got to that point in the opinion, the day it came down, I'm like, oh, great, we, you know, we win, but the court again dodges the question of the status use distinction. But Chief Justice Roberts went on. And he took issue with what he called two recharacterizations that the First Circuit engaged in a recharacterization of the benefit and a recharacterization of the exclusion. Now, with respect to the benefit, remember the First Circuit had said, really, the benefit here is a substitute for a public education. Chief Justice Roberts says, it's no such thing. The statute defines the benefit as tuition at the public or approved private school of the student's choice. It says nothing about a substitute for a public education. And if you look at how the tuition program operates, it doesn't do anything to ensure that these schools are like public schools. The participating schools in the tuition program, while they had to be non-religious, could be unlike public schools in a whole host of respects. They could charge tuition, number one, They didn't have to accept all comers. They didn't have to follow state curriculum. They didn't have to hire state certified teachers. They could discriminate on grounds that public schools could not. They could be, and many were, single sex. So Chief Justice Roberts says, no, this is not a substitute for a public education. The First Circuit was simply recharacterizing the benefit in order to justify the very discrimination that Maine was engaged in. And then Chief Justice Roberts turns to the status use distinction. And as he accurately uh, uh, says, the the First Circuit's opinion is really recharacterizing the exclusion in this case. Um, He begins by saying, look, yeah, there was this footnote in Trinity Lutheran, but we never suggested that use-based discrimination is any less offensive to the free exercise clause. And then he explains why. And he correctly points out that the very purpose of a religious school, that is a school with a religious status, is to engage in the conduct of providing a religious education. And he, he, he cites the, case, the court's earlier decision in Our Lady of Guadalupe, where, he sa- where the court says that educating young people in their faith, inculcating its teachings, and training them to live their faith are responsibilities that lie at the very core of the mission of a private religious school. So again, he's pointing out that it is the very religious status of schools that impels them to engage in the use or the conduct of providing a religious education. So there's no meaningful distinction between status and use. And then he also points out that if we were to give effect to um, Maine's exclusion and to allow them to parse out religious uses, then we're really just inviting the state to engage in scrutiny of religious schools curriculum to determine, um, you know, What's sufficiently irreligious? What's uh, too religious? And that just invites government entanglement with religion uh, and denominational preferences. The, it allows the, the the government to pick winners and losers in terms of uh, which schools are too religious to participate and which schools are sufficiently irreligious. And the Establishment Clause prohibits both of those things. And so the court holds. Regardless of how the benefit and restriction are described, the program operates to identify and exclude otherwise eligible schools on the basis of their religious exercise. So real quickly, what does Carson do for the school choice movement? What does it not do? Uh, Number one, it puts to to bed the status use distinction. Um, It also puts to bed the Blaine Amendments. Now, you'll notice when I talked about Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza, I talked about Blaine amendments. Maine, interestingly, doesn't have a Blaine amendment, even though it was the home of their namesake, James G. Blaine. Um, It excluded schools based on state statute, not a state constitutional provision. So you might think that Carson has little to say about Blaine amendments. That's not the case. The court, in the opinion, actually equates Maine's statute with a Blaine Amendment, specifically with the Blaine Amendment that was at issue in Espinoza. The court says, while the wording of the Montana and Maine provisions is different, their effect is the same. So the state is saying it doesn't matter whether this is a statute-based exclusion or a constitutional-based exclusion, you cannot single out and exclude religious options this way. Um, And that's important because many states Um, have Blaine Amendments that use kind of use-based language. Um, Many of them target schools and institutions with a religious affiliation or status, but many target particular religious conduct. And so, for example, Arizona, Utah, Washington, their Blaine Amendments all speak to religious worship, exercise, or instruction. They prohibit government funding of those things. And so now it's clear that even when a, a Blaine Amendment speaks in that kind of use-based language, it cannot be applied to single out and exclude religious options from a school choice program. Now, what doesn't, does not, uh, what, what doesn't Carson resolve? I think three big issues in the educational choice uh, uh, sphere. The first is whether or not states can condition participation in school choice programs on certain admissions or employment policies. Specifically, um, uh, can a state say you can't participate if you consider sexual orientation or gender identity um, in employment or in admissions? The reason the court didn't speak to that in Carson was because Maine didn't concern itself with that. It excluded all religious schools, and the Kent School found out that out the hard way when it applied to participate in the program. Um, the Kent School does not consider sexual orientation or gender identity in hiring or admissions, yet it was nevertheless excluded because the state deemed it a sectarian school. So that question, the extent to which participation can be conditioned on, on employment and admissions policies is going to be resolved, uh, presumably at some point in the future. In fact, there's a case, Yeshiva University versus YU Pride Alliance, which is making its way through the courts now that may speak on many of those issues. And then really quickly, the, uh, the two other things that Carson does not resolve for the school choice movement. Number one, the permissibility of applying what I call public-private blains to bar school choice programs. These are blame amendments that exist in a handful of states that don't single out and exclude religious schools specifically, but rather all private schools. And so they don't, at least on their face, discriminate against religious schools, and Carson doesn't speak directly to them But as I point out in the article in in, in this year's review, I think there are a number of constitutional problems even with those facially neutral Blaine Amendments that render them just as problematic as the more traditional Blaine Amendment. And then finally is the charter school question. Uh, A lot of media in the run up to the decision and in the wake of the decision suggested that it was opening the door to religious charter schools. It doesn't, it doesn't speak to that issue. Charter schools, while often typically privately operated, are nevertheless public schools, and therefore you have completely different establishment clause concerns when you're dealing with uh, whether or not a charter school may be religious uh, or engage in religious instruction. But nevertheless, Carson resolves the last remaining major uh, constitutional issue concerning choice. Uh, Zellman held it's permissible to include religious options. Carson now makes absolutely clear that state law may not be applied to exclude them. Thank you.
0: All right, thanks to all three of our panelists uh, for those great remarks. Uh, We've now got about 23 minutes for questions and answers. I'd like to remind the audience online, they can submit questions on our event webpage at Cato's website, or in the comments, watching on Zoom, Facebook, or YouTube, or on Twitter using the hashtag CatoScotus, C-A-T-O-S-C-O-T-U-S, and I'll see them pop up on all of my myriad devices here. Um, But first, uh, do we have any questions? I have some questions in reserve, but only if we don't have a hot bench here. So are there any questions here in the audience? Got got a a shy audience to start. All right, I'll start uh, with one for uh, Enrique. Um, Several of the plaintiffs, maybe all of them uh, in this case owned billboards. And Justice Alito wrote a partial concurrence, partial dissent where he distinguished between Billboards, which are not attached to any building at all versus like the sign attached to the restaurant, like the Franklin's barbecue sign. And I thought that was was pretty convincing. It seems like there's a strong case that that really the problem is for signs attached to buildings, not billboards. I wonder if you think if one, you ag- you agree with that the court should have distinguished those two and two, do you think maybe it hurt the case, or maybe this wasn't the ideal posture, the fact that the main plaintiffs seem to be billboard owners rather than, say, a restaurant owner.
1: Well, I thank you for the question. I think Justice Alito is exactly right. The, the, the city of Austin is more than welcome to say, no more billboards in the city of Austin. The city of Austin is more than welcome to say, no one in Austin is allowed to digitize their sign, right? Those, those two ordinances raise no First Amendment concerns at all. What the city of Austin was trying to do was to distinguish, you know, based on the connection between the sign and the place, to favor uh, on-premises signs. And I talk about this in the paper, to really favor property owners, right? Because if your sign is on your property, you can do anything you want with it. If your sign is not on your property like the billboard owners uh, in the case, they can't do anything to it. Um, So so I I think what what Justice Alito is getting at, and I think what the Fifth Circuit recognized to a much better degree uh, than the Supreme Court did, was that there are lots of other ways to regulate signs that don't implicate the First Amendment at all. So if I could just add one more thing. I think I forgot to say the actual reason, what was actually going on in the case. Put aside the very convoluted uh, doctrinal reason that I gave. So, this is in the very first line of the opinion. This is an opinion that's written by Justice Sotomayor, who actually was in the majority in Reed. Um, and the first line of the opinion says there are thousands of jurisdictions across the country that have ordinances like this. And as soon as you're worried about that, you're going to uphold the ordinance, right? And, and, and Justice Roberts is in the majority in both Reed and the city of Austin. And if there is anything that John Roberts hates, it's a bureaucrat. So what, when, when they see this challenge that's brought by these billboard operators, um, what they see are these thousands of lawyer hours paid by taxpayers to try to figure out what all of these state and local sign laws say as a result of you know, some, some incentives in the Highway Beautification Act. We're going to have to, all of this work is going to have to go into figuring out which of these sign ordinances can survive read, and which ones won't. But instead of doing that, they just create an exception, say, no, the city of Austin isn't worried about content. They're only worried about content to the extent there's a connection between the sign and what the sign says and where it is. We're going to carve out an exception to this very elegant rule that we came up with in 2015 to try to prevent all this work on the part of all these cities.
0: Thank you. And then, uh, Liza, I wanted to accept your invitation for uh, talking about congressional solutions a bit during the Q&A I wonder if you could expand on those a bit and also specifically speak to to the extent you can, how, how do you convince people with political concerns or the sort of risk averseness that you might expect to have to run any risk of national security concerns and, and what's sort of the elevator pitch to the Congress person who thinks the last thing I want to do is pass any law that has any chance of you know increase, letting the terrorists you know get away with something
2: uh- I just want to point point out first of all that the litigation we're talking about is litigation that has been bubbling up for about 20 years and has to do with government programs that are basically no longer in place and has to do with terrorists who are no longer in place. And so the notion that actually hearing these cases through and having some kind of accountability for these abuses that happened 20 years ago is going to harm our national security today is, is, I I think I would try to reassure Congress that that's not an issue. Of course, they would also have uh, concerns looking forward to The future but let me first say uh, what I think Congress needs to do. and the first thing they need to do is to make sure that courts are not making are not ruling on whether the privilege on whether the privilege applies to certain evidence based on the government's predictions about what the evidence in the case will be. Again, there is no other evidentiary privilege where a court will actually dismiss a case based on one party's predictions about how evidentiary disputes will be resolved once the parties know what the evidence is. So what that means to me is that Congress should require, uh, essentially should prohibit dismissal on the pleadings for that reason. For the state secrets privilege, there may be other reasons to dismiss standing, other things like that. Uh, But the party should go through discovery and go through the exercise of identifying what the evidence in the case will be through discovery. Uh, To be sure, if uh, responding to a discovery claim, a discovery question, would require the government to disclose privileged evidence, then at that point, the issue is joined uh, and the court should review uh, the evidence and make a determination. But this should not be a blanket determination about the evidence in the case before, before the court even knows what that evidence is. The second thing I think Congress should do is to make sure that courts are scrutinizing the government's claims a little more carefully. Um, And In this regard, I want to point out that the original case that established the evidentiary version of the privilege, that's the Reynolds case, um, the government claimed in that case that it could not disclose an accident report about an Air Force plane crash. This was a lawsuit brought, brought by widows of people who were killed in that crash, and the government said, oh, there'll be all kinds of information about secret equipment in this report. We can't disclose it. The Supreme Court did not look at the evidence and said that the lower court should not look at the evidence. They should simply accept the government's affidavit. Uh, the, case, well, the case was not dismissed, but that evidence was excluded. Um, years later, decades later, the accident report was released. There was no information in that report about secret equipment. There was proof of negligence on the Air Force's part. So there are many reasons, with Reynolds being only one of them, for the court to scrutinize these claims more carefully. And Congress should require the courts to review the actual evidence in camera to make sure that the government's description of the evidence is accurate, not to second guess the government's national security judgment, but to see what the evidence actually is. Um, And the third thing that I think Uh, Congress should do is to think of some creative solutions for situations where evidence might be privileged to allow the case to go forward. Uh, There's another law that applies when classified information is at issue in criminal proceedings. It's called the Classified Information Procedures Act, and it provides a good model for this. Uh, It provides for redacted versions of evidence, summaries of evidence, uh, admissions of fact in lieu of, of introducing the evidence, various different creative ways that will help both plaintiffs and defendants um, to, uh, to go forward with litigation in cases where there's privileged evidence. So those are the main features that I would uh, propose in, a, in, a, in legislation. Uh, and what I would tell Congress is, this is your responsibility. Um, Congress has authorized these lawsuits that are being shut down. So this is not just an issue of the executive branch's Article 2 authority to protect national security information. This is intruding on Congress's Article 1 authority to authorize legislation in these cases. It is intruding on the court's Article 3 responsibility to adjudicate cases and controversi- controversies. So this is really necessary Um, to uphold the constitutional balance of powers, to make sure that there is accountability for abuses in national security policy and not create this accountability free zone, uh, and to restore the privilege back to the way the Reynolds Court conceived of it. I think they did a misstep in terms of not reviewing the evidence in camera, but the Reynolds Court said it's an evidentiary privilege. It falls out of the case. Let the chips fall where they may, Um, and the lower courts have gone too far from that. That was a Long answer.
0: Oh, it's a great answer, thank you. Uh, and then Michael, I'll, I'll have one for, for you as well and then I'll see if we have any uh, in reserve in the audience. One of the cases that uh, the opposing side relied on heavily was an uh, older case called Locke versus Davy, which was about public funding. Uh, correct me if I'm making it too simplistic, but essentially a, a case where public funding went to someone studying for the ministry specifically to be a minister. Um, and the, And the Supreme Court basically said, no, you don't have to fund that. Um, I'm wondering at this point, what do you think is the status of that case? Has is that in, in tension with where the current doctrine lies? Can it coexist with it? Um, and if it can exist. Is it basically now limited to just literally studying for the ministry or will there be any difficult line drawings going forward between that versus just general religious education?
3: Sure, great question. So I, you know, I, the fact that Locke has caused mischief for so long is, is always been interesting to me because the case involved a scholarship program in Washington State. Uh, it was a, a need and, and uh, achievement-based scholarship that kids could use. They could attend religious schools, they could take religious courses, they could take um, compulsory religious courses. The only thing they couldn't do was use the program uh, if they were majoring in what the state called devotional theology, which was specifically a theology program designed to train future ministers. And uh, the Supreme Court upheld that exclusion in a 7-2 opinion, but in doing so, it did a couple of things that in my mind, should have cabined the decision from the outset to just that situation. Uh, Number one, it said the only state interest we're addressing in this case is the state's interest in not funding clergy. Um, That should have been enough right there to say that's all this case is about. Moreover, the court said that the case turned on the unique um, uh, historical state interest in not funding clergy, which was commonplace. There were there were commonly in the early state constitutions prohibitions on a state-funded clergy, and so the court said that there's you know uh, historically this exclusion is 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 well-founded. That also should have cabined the decision, but opponents of school choice read Locke far more broadly as allowing any kind of religious exclusion in a scholarship or financial aid program, and many lower courts bought that argument, and um, including the First Circuit, which in a previous case, striking down the religious exclusion in the main program, pointed to Locke and said that this was justification to exclude religious options from education programs more generally. uh, generally. Um, In Carson, the Supreme Court finally says no. Locke is limited to one thing and one thing only, and that is exclusions that, again, are for students who are studying for a career in the clergy, vocational religious instruction. I don't think there's any more wiggle room. The only thing, as I say in the article, the only other you know things the court have, uh, could have done uh, to make it any more clear was either overrule Locke outright, which I wish it had, but it didn't. Or limit it to litigants named Gary Locke and Joshua Davy, um, but short of that, there was nothing else that the court could have done more clearly to make to, to, to say, you know, there 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 is no more um, uh, traction in Locke. It dealt with a very unique, specific, historically uh, rooted state interest in not funding clergy. It doesn't speak to religious exclusions any more broadly than that.
0: Great, thank you. Questions? Uh, we have one right in here, front, front there.
4: Thank you, uh, this is David Schneer. I uh, wanna uh, pose this to Mr. Bendis. There's been a significant amount of attention given to the effect of both COVID and uh, trans uh, uh, and other kinds of sexual related or gender related activities that has been causing uh, families to attempt to leave Uh, government schools to go to private schools and I'm wondering uh, a particular case in which a parent did not want trans and gender studies for their child to be part of the school curriculum uh, were then accosted by the government claiming that they were abusing their child and had the child taken away from them and I'm wondering if you could look forward a little bit and talk about uh, what the government interest arguments might be for those who are promoting Gender studies and those who are demanding COVID uh, protections and, in particular, uh, shots in uh, public schools.
3: Goodness, um, those are difficult questions, and, and I'm not sure I'm competent to speak to them um, uh, as a school choice litigator. But you know, I, I would say, for, from my perspective, it's the, the 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 more interesting question is not what is the state interest for. Um, teaching certain things in state schools, um, uh, they are, after all, state schools. Um, And while, you know, I I guess I would say that while no one is compelled to attend them, uh, certainly we have compulsory attendance requirements, and for many families, perhaps most families, opting out of the public school system is not, um, is not an option financially. After all, we assign kids to schools based on zip code, based on, on where their house is, which is just a proxy for wealth. Um, so, you know, but nevertheless, it's, it's a difficult question because nevertheless, after all, they are government schools. And I think that's the beauty of school choice is that uh, it provides another option for those families who can't exercise... Um, you know they uh, can't opt out of those things by moving to a different public school district or paying tuition out of pocket, um, and so I think we've seen a proliferation of school choice programs in the last two years. I think most of that is probably attributable to what parents saw during the pandemic. Um, perhaps some of it is, is um, has to do with some of the other issues you mentioned. Um, inevitably. You know there are going to be clashes about the extent to which states can condition school choice participation on schools adopting some of the policies that you are mentioning that exist in the public school system. Um, and you know, I again, that, that that's it's kind of not my area of expertise um, institutionally at IJ. Um, you know, we we've we don't have a, a position on some of these issues. Um, But I would say Carson does address some of that, at least with respect to religious schools, indirectly. And that is, remember that I said that um, it relied uh, a a decent amount on on Our Lady of Guadalupe. That case was all about religious autonomy. Um, It concerned uh, a religious school's uh, ability to um, avoid um, employment discrimination claims based on alleged sex discrimination. And the court, relying on principles of religious autonomy, held that um, uh, you know the, the the church-run schools in that case could not be subjected to those lawsuits. And so um, the fact that Carson relied heavily on Our Lady of Guadalupe and that kind of its principle of religious autonomy perhaps forecasts where the court will come out on some of these issues that that you know uh, that lie ahead, uh, whether condition you know uh, government can condition participation on certain admissions policies or employment policies but again I, I uh you know i wish i could say something more beyond that i'm not sure i've even begun to ad- uh, answer your question but uh again it's just not um you know it's a it's an area that's out of ij's kind of institutional focus and um and you know something that inevitably will be litigated um and we'll, we'll have to see how those come out. But I, I would keep an eye on that Yeshiva case that I mentioned, um, particularly with respect to the sexual orientation, gender identity stuff.
0: More questions? Uh, Professor Amar? Uh, wait, wait for the mic just a second. Uh, for Attorney Bendis, um, uh, you mentioned the public-private um, Blaine amendments, which are formally um, neutral, but that you have some concerns about um, what are those concerns, and um, if they're about you know specific legislative history of a discrimination, fine. But if they're not, would that be a thin edge of a wedge that would require basically vouchers everywhere? Um,
5: um,
3: just you know, uh, and and say the mono- the public school monopoly is itself unconstitutional. Um, you know, I, I don't think they my theories would go that far. And after all, in Carson and in Espinoza before it the court says point blank, the state is not required to subsidize private education. Um, but once it chooses to, do, chooses to do so, it can't discriminate based on religion. Um, as to my theory as to why, or theories as to why public blains, public-private blames are, are just as problematic, I, I would really say three things. Just as a traditional Blaine conditions uh, a public benefit on a parent's surrender of her free exercise rights, A public-private Blaine conditions um, a public benefit based on a parent's um, surrender of her, (laughs) bless you, uh, her rights under Pierce versus Society of Sisters to select a private school for their children. So it conditions a right just as the more conventional um, Blaine's do. Uh, Number two, so long as Smith is still good law, um, even operating within that framework, Public-private Blaine's burden a hybrid right. Uh, A hybrid right mentioned in Smith itself, which is free exercise coupled with the right to direct the education of your children. And so I think there's an argument that even under Smith, although these provisions are facially neutral, they should still be subject to strict scrutiny because they do burden a hybrid right in that respect, which Smith says still gets strict scrutiny. And then the last thing I would say, that in my view there's an equal protection problem and this goes back to Romer versus Evans where remember Colorado adopted a constitutional amendment that uh, prohibited any um, aid or um, preferred status to uh, gay and lesbian citizens. The court invalidated that saying uh, that a state constitutional provision that makes it in the court's words more difficult for one group of citizens than for all others to seek aid from the government is, um, is uh, I forget the exact words, but by definition, equal protection problem. And public uh, private planes do the exact same thing. They impose a structural barrier that make it more difficult, actually impossible, for parents who choose a private school for their children to seek aid from the government. So those are the, those are the arguments that I would make.
0: Another question? Devin?
5: Uh, my question is to Elizabeth. Um, I know that uh, having uh, in-camera view on in these cases would be a step of improvement for the current status quo. But in my opinion, that doesn't go far enough. We really need adversarial briefing in cases like this. And what I would... No, oh, Helen. Uh, what I would like to see is, you know, the government say this is a top secret document. You got to have a top secret lawyer with a top secret clearance to be able to represent you. He might not be able to share with the client all the details. But um, in that kind of case, you can have an adversarial proceeding with people that have the appropriate security clearances, or if it's even more restricted, have the government give a list of you know 10 lawyers that would, the government would trust to be able to securely handle this kind of information. I agree
2: 100 percent. Am I on? Yes. Um, I agree 100 percent and I gave you the Reader's Digest version of what I would like to see Congress do. Um, I'd like to see them not make predictions about evidence, that was the first part. The second part, when I said I'd like them to review the evidence more closely, I left out, just for brevity's sake, another aspect to that, which is to increase the adversariality of that review through exactly the mechanisms that you're talking about. And such mechanisms are contemplated and often used in in SEPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act. So we have a model for it, we know it can work. Now, in certain circumstances, uh, we, in some of these cases, we have seen Um, courts try to uh, get the government to agree to clear uh, the plaintiff's attorney. The government has dragged its feet. It's behaved very badly. Um, It is pointed to a Supreme Court case that says that the executive branch has complete and total control over over to whom it grants clearances. So I'm not saying that it would go entirely smoothly, but it would certainly be another uh, improvement over the current system. So thank you for that point.
0: All right. Well, it's right at 2.15, so we're going to have to end there. If you have more burning questions, you can, you have more questions, you can find our panelists somewhere uh, getting refreshments. Uh, we're going to take a 10-minute break. Refreshments are available in the Conference Center foyer. We'll reconvene for panel three at 2.25 p.m. But first, let's thank all of our panelists.